This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. I am the author of Embracing the Abyss, where your abyss becomes a portal to your soul. It's a true story of unknowingly becoming part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. Yes, I'm the guy with a presidential pardon. That's me. Uh, I'm going to continue today with my book, Reading. It's a good story, and I've had positive feedback. I'm going to begin with uh, Chapter 6. Again, my book, this book, Embracing the Abyss. So here we go, Chapter 6. It was September 1983. Dondi accounting staff had arranged a Friday evening happy hour at close by Shotgun Willie's, which was a bar and a club where people dance and so forth. Only one week earlier, I'd been having a beer with an old high school friend. I told him that I had lost all faith in meeting a woman that I would want to marry. For over a year, I had dated a lot, meeting lots of women who I had a lot of fun with, but no one seemed to be the one I was looking for. I reached the point of giving up because I now concluded she didn't exist. My friend agreed, sometimes it works out that way, doesn't it? And I replied that I was tired of looking. So no more expectations, I said. The Friday evening happy hour event at Shotgun Willie's included both Dondi accounting staff and some people from Texas Instruments. After sizing the place up, I began to mix in with the crowd. Arriving at a booth where three women were sitting, including my friend Karen from Dondi Accounting, I stopped to say hello. Karen made the introductions. To one of the ladies, I said, Nice to meet you, Alice, which drew a quick correction. My name is not Alice, she said. It is Alex, short for Alexandra. I apologized, and then my intuition kicked in, and the message came. I heard the words that had been said to me four years ago by a Dallas psychic named Ms. Harris, with whom I had a reading. Her answer to my question, how will I know it's her? And the answer was, you'll know. Miss Harris was an elderly woman with white hair, pleasant, but no nonsense, a no nonsense type of person. One day during lunch at the company I worked for that had gone bankrupt, a couple of girls were scurrying about preparing for a visit to see Miss Harris, and I asked if I wanted to go 
Go along, tag along. What's a reading, I asked. How do you do it? They explained the basics, and I decided to give it a go. Evoking their ladies' first privilege, I had to wait until last. I sat in the living room visiting with Mr. Harris, who rocked in his rocking chair, watching TV. Finally, it was my turn. I entered the bedroom where Miss Harris was sitting. As I was positioning a chair across from her, she looked at me and said, you're getting a divorce. And I said, what? And she repeated, you're going to get a divorce. And I replied, I don't want a divorce. And she countered, that doesn't matter. You're getting one anyway. You could have knocked me over with a feather. She then began to shuffle a regular deck of cards that she used to interpret futures. My future was coming whether I wanted one or not. I asked, why am I getting a divorce? She said, I don't know, but you will. Still stunned, I asked, will I remarry? She said, yes, to a lovely, very lovely woman. Pointing to the side of her temple, she said, she'll come to about here on you. Her hair will be slightly lighter than yours, and she'll wear almost, she'll weigh almost as much as you. She's schooled, smart, and athletic. When will I get meet her? I asked. She replied, not sure, but you'll know when it's her. Mrs. Harris shuffled the cards again and asked me to cut the deck three times. She proceeded by saying, I see a lot of lawyers, a whole bunch of lawyers. Since I was a CPA, I figured that meant I was going to be professionally successful. She interrupted my wishful moment to say, it will be difficult for you, but you'll get through it. As I look back on that moment, I remember being confused, not knowing what to make of it. The more I thought about it, the more confused I got. As much as I analyzed what she said, I couldn't figure it out, so I stopped wondering about it and left it in God's hands and the FBI's, apparently. The happy hour crowd was getting pretty noisy, but I still heard the voice in my head saying, she's the one. I shook my head to the side like there was something in my ear. I took a calm, deep breath to smooth out the excitement to see if the voice was gone. But I heard it again. She's the one. I didn't argue with myself because one of me always loses. I'd been waiting for this moment for a long time and could hardly believe it was happening. Happening. Alex surprised me with her quick wit and easygoing demeanor. She had a slight accent I couldn't place. Later, I learned her father was Scottish and her mother Australian. After a 20-minute visit, I decided to leave and said, nice to meet you again. The following week, I returned from a Vernon savings dove hunt with a couple of Dondi guys in an RV. They had decided to keep the RV to take to Shreveport to do some gambling over the weekend. I got the idea in my head 
that Alex might like to go. So I called, got her phone number from Karen. I called her and asked if she would like to take a short trip to Shreveport to gamble in the casinos of Louisiana. I told her an RV would be available for the trip. She said, no, thanks. I asked, are you sure? She said, yes. What if I don't like you and end up stuck in an RV? I was a little taken back at the response, but, but I could see the wisdom in it. I said, then, then guess I'll have to ask you out on a regular date. And she replied, yes, you should do that. The next day I called for a regular date and we set it for the upcoming Friday. I could hardly wait. <clears throat> I drove to her apartment and rang the doorbell. She came to the door and motioned me through the small kitchen to the dining room. She stopped and turned around. She was wearing a gorgeous black dress. I had never seen such a beautiful being. At that moment, I felt like I needed an anchor chained to my ankle or I would float away. My heart was pounding. I mean, my heart was triple pounding. Standing across from her, I was dumbstruck, not knowing what to say. <clears throat> then she did a full pirouette, smiled a big smile, and said, I am so ready to go. And I, too, was ready to go and already so hooked, having taken the full line and sinker. <clears throat> I reminded myself to maintain my cool throughout the evening. I drove to Greenville Avenue, where the clubs lined both sides of the street. The first place we tried looking for dinner was a club called Champagne Johnny's. We went inside and didn't wait long for seating. After a few moments, I noticed that she was very quiet, and I said, you had become quiet. What's up? You become quiet. Yeah, I remember. She said, I want to leave. Not asking why. I said, okay, we can do that. And we did. We got into my car and drove across the street to another club for dinner. We had a good time. When we got ready to leave after dinner, I reached into my pocket for my wallet, but it wasn't there. I remembered then I left it on my kitchen counter but it hadn't made the trip due to someone hurrying too much for a regular date. At first, I felt a little panic, but kept it to myself. Then I felt a wave of embarrassment that she had to buy dinner using her daddy's American Express card. Recently graduating as an engineer from Cornell University, she had not established her own credit yet. After dinner, we made our way down the street to a club on the other side of Greenville Avenue that had the frog statues on the roof. We went inside and proceeded to dance the night away. Around 11 p.m. or so, she said, I don't think I should dance anymore. Why, I replied, because I broke the zipper on the back of my dress. What a beautiful looking black dress it was. She eliminated or illuminated the room every time she walked onto the dance floor. But given the current circumstances, it was time to go. On the way home, she told me that what had saddened her had caused her to become very quiet 
at the first restaurant. The guy she had been dating had told her that he wasn't available that evening for a date. He told her he had family matters to attend to. But there he was, Champagne Johnny's sitting across the room with another date. This critical sighting by Alex ended that relationship and paved the way for me, for us. I remembered a movie scene where the teenage boy surprised at finding a Playboy bunny on his bed. She'd been thrown in through his bedroom window via an explosion outside. The kid said, thanks, God. And after what happened to Sh at Champagne Johnny's, I too said, thanks, God. During my first 14 years on this planet until we moved to Dallas, everyone I knew called me Johnny. I wondered if it was my name that had attracted me to that restaurant or if destiny had left a trail and waited inside. <clears throat> we left and headed in the direction of her apartment. I was preparing to cruise back by changing some settings on my car's super-duper stereo system. I thought I could impress her with some more music. But it wasn't long until she was quiet again. I realized that she had fallen asleep. Her head leaned against the headrest, her face angled towards the windows. Some regular date, huh? I arrived at her apartment complex and gently woke her. I got out and hurried around to the passenger door to help her out. We approached the stairs to her second floor apartment. As she began her ascent, I said goodnight and started walking towards my car. I could tell from her facial expression that she was a little surprised. I said I'd had a good time and would call. I did not kiss her, didn't even try. There would be a month of dating and almost daily phone calls before I would ask for a kiss. And then she delivered. On our second regular date at another club along Greenville Avenue, with a large fence around a backyard where we sat, I announced to Alex that she was going to have my children. She later claimed that I had freaked her out, but I don't recall seeing it. During the reading session, when Ms. Harris told me I was getting a divorce, I asked her if there would be children with my unknown-to-be-determined wife. The answer was yes. And that's the end of Chapter 6. That was... Uh, uh, quite, uh, um, you know, it was one of those things that just came to me. It, it all the pieces put together were in, were going, putting themselves correctly in the puzzle. It was amazing, just amazing. Okay, chapter seven, the commander. In the summer of 1984, the commander came to Vernon Savings from being the assistant commissioner for Texas Savings and Loans. He was from Vernon, Texas, although many people that I spoke with didn't recall him as being from Vernon. But he was born there, grew up there, and left there when it was time. He was older than I, clean-cut, straightforward, no-nonsense sort of person. He served 20 years as an officer with the Department of Public Safety, it seemed to be a pretty good fit for him to come aboard at Vernon Savings. 
Not too long after the commander arrived, he asked, asked me to come to his office and visit with him. He said he was looking for somebody to assist him to help with administrative type things. He said he'd been around talking to people and was told I was a pretty good guy, that I was smart, that I knew who was who and what was what around here. Would I consider working directly under him? Yes, I accepted. He provided me his protection and my punishment in a corporate exile officially ended. <clears throat> Soon, Woody Lemons and the board of directors, with Dixon's approval, of course, appointed the commander to be the chief operating officer of Vernon Savings. Eventually, the commander's job, more than anything, would morph into making sure that Dixon wasn't doing what Dixon was doing. What the commander didn't know was that Dixon had been doing what Dixon does for a long time. There were so many ways Dixon had it up to do what he did. There was no possible way for the commander to find out about them all. That's because the people who were making payments for Dixon by using loan funds did not work for the commander. They got their orders from Dixon. Commander didn't really have any control over them or the details of their transactions. Without the knowledge to make the changes to stop Woody and Dixon, he was powerless. He ran out of time. The ship sank before he would discover the extent of fraud and the secret plans that he kept under wraps. Now, he didn't keep it, that the others kept it under wraps. <clears throat> We had thought he was going to be employed by a terrific SNL with the best profits in the state of Texas. He'd done his research before signing up with Vernon Savings. Once he was hired on, it wasn't too long before he began to see some of what was going on, but by then he felt it was too late to do anything about it and hoped that it was the next exception, not the rule. He was, I believe to some extent, overwhelmed after he began to realize he was only looking at the tip of the iceberg. How do you change the behavior of the chairman and the president? I think the situation at Vernon Savings were more problematic, problematic than he ever thought possible. The commander was the G. Gordon Liddy of Vernon Savings. In terms of toughness, his outlook on what he should do what he should not do, and how he should do it. The commander never really knew the underlying character or health or lack thereof of Vernon's loan portfolio until the end. When he told me he was appalled at how many bad things were on the bottom of the ship, where the god-awful loans were. He felt strongly that he wasn't part of the process of the past, nor the present, and that he wasn't involved with any scheme. He and I developed a close friendship, trusting each other, and I believed he did not intend to commit any crime because he lacked, he lacked the intention. He told me he committed no crime. Remember that, John Boy, he said to me. He wasn't there during the early extreme growth years when his integrity and thoroughness were most needed. In the downward spiral, Dixon had propelled us into could have been halted. That's the end of chapter seven.
Moving along. During 1983 and 84, this is chapter eight, politics. 1983 and 84, the political climate for savings and loans was at its peak of activity and would remain so for the next few years. Many of the SNLs were members of the state SNL association, and all members were interested in the politics of how to keep the feds from interfering with their ability to make money. The regulators or feds who were becoming more aware that there were misdeeds being done in different Texas savings and loans. There were many political meetings, one of which the commander asked me to attend as an observer to determine whether or not the political association was serving its purpose. Our guy, who I called Mr. Political, usually attended, but he often seemed to have an exaggerated view of the political association and its individual members, describing how positive and constructive the meetings were. But we didn't see many, if any, results to support his claims. I attended the meeting in Fort Worth. Jim Wright, Speaker of the House in the United States Congress, was there to orchestrate the show. I don't think I've ever seen a man with eyebrows larger than Jim Wright's. The room was like a large classroom filled with owners and employees of Texas SNLs, not in attendance with the regulators, the feds, who were considered the opposition. I took a seat in the back of the room to observe as the meeting was about to begin. I was particularly interested in those being behind the podium. Those who appeared to be busy updating the agenda and delivering messages. Those in front of it were just visiting with each other, taking and talking about the best way to fight the feds. I don't recall there being any motions or political actions determined or decided. What I do recall throughout the meeting was a lot of hustle and bustle up around the podium and to the sides of the podium. This hustle and bustle mostly consisted of the podium group of folks asking the rest of us for political donations. <laughs> Besides that, the other thing I noticed was the most of the most of the participants were not tall, which is a kind way to put it. They were all short guys. Each short guy seemed to have a very long cigar that wasn't lit. My view of what was occurring was the people really running the show were a bunch of short guys with long cigars. <laughs> I reported that information to the commander. He got a kick out of what I saw and at least out of the way, I described it. He was also wary of whether or not the people attending the meeting were really a part of the political aspect or movement for the, for the various SNLs. The commander had served as the assistant commissioner of savings and loan for the state of Texas, and in doing so, fielded many requests from SNL owners, employees, and other affiliated persons asking for something. From his experience, I believe he developed a skeptical view of people. He wondered whether they were any good or not, and whether they were doing any good or not. After all, they did seem to spend most of their time hustling each other and asking the SNLs to make political contributions. <clears throat> Dixon had separately been involved in making political contributions further, 
He often instructed Vernon Savings and Dondi Group higher-ups to contribute as well. He allowed them to be reimbursed by filing an expense report for the political contributions they made. Now, this, of course, was against the law. I was sometimes asked to remind staff that Dixon wanted them to make political contributions. I would follow up that statement by saying they'd have to talk to Dixon about how to get reimbursed. Dixon believed that <clears throat> given enough money, politicians in Washington, D.C. would eventually clamp down on the regulators. Jim Wright openly sided with the owners of savings and loans, being told and believing that there was no wrongdoing going on at the thrifts. That's a nickname for savings and loans, the thrifts. History tells us that this was not true. Jim Wright's loss of the speaker's seat was proof enough of that. Well, that was good, I think. It, uh, I'm glad, you, my audience, for you to be here, listening in. Uh, it's all a big story, and I enjoy reading it to you. It's um, something that we'll do here on the, uh, on the other side of the, of the show. Thanks again for listening in. Happy trails to all.